Okay, so I think uh, we'll get started. Um, so welcome to everybody to uh, this uh, Centre for Economic Performance, London School of Economics uh, public lecture. Uh, I'm delighted to announce uh, we have Jason Furman, who's going to be our speaker tonight. Uh, he doesn't need much introduction, I'm, as I'm sure you all know him. He's the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, which I believe uh, is the Chief Economist of the United States, or is Eddie Lazier always referred to himself when he was in that position as the Chief Economist <laughs> of the United States. Uh, prior to this role, uh, Jason has served as the uh, Principal Deputy Director of the National Economic Council. He's been Director of the Hamilton Project in the Brookings Institution. Uh, he was Special Assistant to the President for Economic Policy during the Clinton Administration under Joe Stiglitz. So I have to say, uh, amazingly, uh, Jason did this when he was a PhD student uh, at Harvard. So the PhDs in the room, you know, you could actually, <laughs> you know, work work for the uh, the president while uh, you're still doing your PhD. It's uh, quite quite amazing at such a young age. Uh, Jason's conducted research in a wide range of different areas, kind of fiscal policy, tax policy, health, economics, social security, and monetary uh, policy. He uh, was an undergraduate at Harvard. Uh, also got a PhD in economics at Harvard and MA in government. Most importantly, of course, he uh, did a Master's uh, of Economics here at the LSE, so we're particularly Woo! glad to... Yep, cheers at this point. <laughs> <laughs> we're well, particularly uh, glad that uh, you, could, you could come back and... Uh, um, I, 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 I hope I'm not uh, revealing too much. So one of the things that I was very interested to learn as well, that in your freshman year, your roommate was Matt Damon. Is that correct? So uh, um, very, very uh, impressive and interesting. So we, we can hear about those stories afterwards. Jason's going to speak for about 45 minutes, and uh, then afterwards we'll have a chance for some Q&A. So without further ado, over to you, Jason. Okay, Thank great. you. Uh, thank you, John, um, for that introduction and for organizing this discussion. It's really exciting to be back at the London School of Economics. I learned an enormous amount here. At the time, I didn't know that the most important thing I would learn for the work I'd subsequently do was the book Unemployment by Richard Layard, Stephen Nichol, and, and Jackman. Um, but that really encapsulated a lot of the challenges that we faced when we first came into office in um, 2009. The Council of Economic Advisors is in some ways a unique institution um, in the world. The United States has an economic advisory group that um, reports directly to the president as opposed to being embedded in a ministry, which is how it would happen in most countries. And a nearly 70-year-old history of providing um, unvarnished advice to the president, contributing to the formulation um, of his agenda, and helping to um, communicate that agenda, as hopefully I'll be able to do part of um, today. As John said, we do um, always have openings. Unfortunately, they're limited to American citizens by U.S. law. Um, but um, I think it's a great place to contribute. Today, um, I sent about a month ago the title Structural Opportunities in the U.S. Economy. As I worked on the talk, um, decided a better title would be Structural Challenges and Opportunities on the U.S. Economy. And I'm going to cover three broad areas. The first is going to be the U.S. recovery at present 
where we are um, right now, what's happened over the last few years to get us there. And one of the themes in that is going to be that one of the big challenges that we still face is in terms of incomes for what we in the United States call the middle class, and I understand in England um, isn't the exact phrase you use for it, um, but hopefully we'll all understand each other. And so that'll bring us to the second part of our talk, where I'll try to look back over the last 65 years to try to understand what shaped the incomes of the middle class in the United States, and in particular the roles of productivity, inequality, and um, participation, and put some of that in a global context um, as well. And then finally, I'll get to the title um, that I promised all of you and talk about some of the structural opportunities that we have in the United States to address that, those challenges, especially in the areas of health, energy, and technology. So let me start with the U.S. economic recovery at present. Like many countries um, around the world, including the United Kingdom, we faced um, tremendous headwinds to the recovery. A lot of those were financial in nature, um, a precipitating event for the Great Recession was a loss of wealth that was five times larger than the loss of wealth that precipitated the Great Depression. And the collapse in global trade was larger than the collapse in global trade that precipitated the Great Depression. That shock led to impaired bank balance sheets, indebted consumers, and a housing bubble that made it impossible to get out of the recession in the normal way you would, just by cutting interest rates and seeing a large increase in investment. That set of financial issues was compounded by state and local governments, which had balanced budget rules, cutting back on spending. Normally, um, they'd be pro-cyclical and be increasing their spending as the economy recovered. That took about another four-tenths of a percentage point per year off growth. And then you add to that a series of events, many of them global, like the euro crisis, slowing growth in China, the Japanese earthquake, as well as domestic ones like Hurricane Sandy. Despite all of that, um, the United States has gone a substantial way in its economic recovery, and the pace of that recovery is increasing. More than half of the 15.5 million jobs added by high-income countries since 2007 have been added in the United States, despite the fact that it's home to only 30% of the population of those countries. Our economy recovered its per capita GDP to its pre-crisis peak in mid-2012, after four and a half years, something the UK has done um, this year, a country that faced greater exposure to some of those global events like the Euro crisis. If you look at the pace of economic growth, it's strengthened over the last 2013 and 2014. It's been a 2.6% annual rate for GDP growth, up from 2.1% in the first three and a half years of the recovery. And that's largely due to a pickup in consumer spending, although it's also related to reduced um, fiscal drag over that whole period at the state and local level 
And more recently, we've had less fiscal drag from the federal level. You see the recovery um, most clearly in the job market. We've added jobs in the private sector for 55 straight months. That's the longest consecutive period of job creation that we've had in the country. This past year, we've added jobs at a rate of 227,000 jobs a month, faster than last year, which was faster than the year before, which was faster than the year before that. That's adding about 2% to our jobs. It's the equivalent of about 50,000 jobs here in the UK, so it's a little bit slower than the pace of job growth that you've enjoyed. The unemployment rate was falling at about half a percentage point per year in the first couple of years of the recovery. In the last year, that decline has accelerated to 1.3 percentage points over the past year, which is the fastest pace of decline in nearly 30 years. And as a result, if you compare the actual unemployment rate, which is what you see in the blue line, to the forecasts made at different dates, the unemployment rate has consistently come down faster than those forecasts. In fact, as recently as 2013, the forecast was that we wouldn't get the unemployment rate below 6% until 2017, and it happened um, in September, three months ahead of what was expected. The overall recovery in the headline unemployment rate is for the most part, consistent with the recovery we see in broader measures of unemployment. So if you include discouraged workers who have given up looking for a job and left the labor force, or you add other marginally attached workers, which is people who would like a job if one came to them, but for whatever reason, they're not actively looking, those groups aren't normally classified as um, the unemployed, but if you lump them in with the unemployed and do a broader definition of unemployment, you would find that the labor market is about 70% of the way back to where it was before the, um, uh, it was about 75% of the way back to where it was before the crisis, a little bit less than the recovery measured in the official rate. We're also seeing this translate um, into wage gains. The wage gains um, aren't nearly sufficient to make up for all the challenges that came before. But um, if you look at production and non-supervisory workers, which is roughly the bottom 80% of workers, their average wages adjusted for inflation have risen at about 1% per year pace for the last um, two years. And you can see this here, that the inflation line, which is the blue one, has been roughly constant, bouncing up and down, a lot of that with more volatile components like energy, while that green line, which is nominal wages, has been growing at a faster and faster pace and exceeded that blue line, indicative of real wage growth. As I said, this wage growth hasn't been enough to make up for the fact that you had had decades of stagnation prior to the recession and a huge hit in the recession. 
And as a result, real median family income, although it went up in 2013, is still lower than it was in 1997. And that's the challenge that I'll be coming back to in the second part of this talk. In addition to where you are in the recovery, what it's doing in labor markets, what it's doing for wages, a really important question is how sustainable and durable that economic recovery was. In many ways, the economic expansion from 2001 to 2007 was built on debt, foreign debt, domestic debt, and a housing bubble that eventually came crashing to the ground in 2007, precipitating the recession. I think in a lot of different respects, the United States has made a lot of progress on rebalancing and putting our economy into a more sustainable footing when it comes to a wide range of concepts of indebtedness. One of those is our net foreign borrowing, the current account balance, which rose pretty continuously from 1990 up until just before the recession began. It now, it fell in the recession, as you would expect, and then has continued falling, even though the United States has, um, is relatively strong compared to other economies, which you would normally think would increase your current account deficit. As a result, it's a little bit more than 2% of GDP right now, back to where it was um, in the 1990s. While the United States is less vulnerable to the types of current account issues that many other countries are, because we have the world's reserve currency, there's no doubt that this puts you in a more sustainable position in the short run, and in the long run means that um, raises your national income. A second area where you see rebalancing um, is gross national savings, and this is largely the reason why you've seen the improvement in the current account deficit, which is that we as a country are saving more. There's been um, a small increase in savings by households, a small increase in savings by businesses, but the big change that's generating the improvement you see here is the federal budget deficit, which went from 9.8% of GDP in 2009 to 2.8% of GDP this past fiscal year. That was the largest deficit reduction that our country has seen since the demobilization from World War II. In some senses, it was more rapid than is consistent with the type of growth that we'd like to have, and I'll come back to that very briefly in a moment. Um, but it does um, put us in this more sustainable position. The third area of rebalancing and sustainability is what's happening with household debt. We've worked it down to levels relative to income that were last seen in 2002, prior to the housing bubble. That is in part um, as households saved more, as they were able to borrow less. And one advantage we had over a number of European countries was a better ability for consumers, and especially homeowners, to um, work out their debt and reduce it where necessary. 
When you combine that debt reduction with the lower interest rates, and in the United States, it's easier to refinance your home mortgage than it is in many other countries, you get the fact that household debt service payments as a share of disposable income have fallen below 10% for the first time since we've started keeping records in 1980. So I think if you look at an aggregate level, the consumer sector has largely gone through um, the very painful process of deleveraging. That's obviously not true for every household and many typical households that have a higher ratio of their wealth in housing and a lower ratio in equity markets um, have been less successful than you'd see in the aggregate data. Um, but nevertheless, this is important. <laughs> Finally, um, corporations have also gone through that deleveraging process. And you see debt equity ratios um, for corporations below what they were prior to the crisis. So we are in a more sustainable position, but we certainly still face, in the short run, um, some challenges. And I think the biggest ones are associated with slowdowns and troubles in the global economy, um, the Eurozone, China, Japan, and elsewhere. The United States is, to some degree, um, better insulated from these than many other countries. Exports are 13% of our GDP as compared to 27% of the UK's GDP and 45% of German GDP. But nonetheless, the combination of slowing world GDP, changes in the exchange rate, create a headwind that can combine itself with um, financial contagion and other effects to affect the economy. In addition to that, turbulence um, in asset markets and potentially froth in some sectors is another um, short-term concern for the economy. Finally, the unemployment rate can't keep falling um, forever. And so that source of growth of putting people back to work and getting closer to your potential will be absent. So you'll have to rely you know, even more on expanding your potential after the economy has recovered. I want to talk briefly about the role that public policy has played in this because I think it's important both for a number of countries around the world that are still facing and have not gotten out of the types of challenges that the United States faced. And we're not out of it by any stretch, um, but have made more progress than um, some. So I think it's an important lesson around the world now, and I think it's an important lesson because we haven't ended the business cycle and there'll be recessions at some point in the future. And learning what worked in this response, I think, is important. The first is fiscal policy and fiscal expansion. The first fiscal stimulus was passed in February 2008 when the unemployment rate had risen to 4.9%, which isn't particularly high, but it was clear what direction it was going. A year later, President Obama signed the Recovery Act into law, which was the single largest fiscal recovery measure as a share of the economy that um, we've ever done in the United States. Subsequently, we did over a dozen 
or about a dozen other fiscal jobs measures, payroll tax cut, incentives for hiring, incentives for home ownership, incentives for infrastructure, that all told added up to 3% of GDP of fiscal expansion in 2010. When you add the automatic stabilizers, it got to 5.5% of GDP. After that, um, the United States missed an opportunity to do more. The president submitted the American Jobs Act to Congress in 2011, which would have done substantially more, sought the extension of unemployment insurance this past year, and has consistently pushed for greater investments in infrastructure that Congress has rejected. But even while we didn't do as much as we would have liked, we were able to do a lot, and it made a difference. In addition to that, we've had accommodative monetary policy with low rates, quantitative easing, and forward guidance. <coughs> Fiscal and monetary was complemented by a set of financial policies, the center of which was TARP, which rescued the banking system and got, in effect, fully repaid for the cost of that and turned a small profit on the banks, as well as the resources that were put into rescuing the auto sector and helping to stabilize housing. If you look at all of these together, Alan Blinder and Mark Zandi estimated that they saved 8.5 million jobs that would otherwise have been lost and prevented the unemployment rate from rising to 16%. I think we still need to be concerned, not at this moment, not in this year, but at some point in the future about the types of macroeconomic stability issues and trying to make sure that we're not going through another crisis like what we went through. I think we're in much more durable shape with things like Dodd-Frank financial reform, but it's something that's an important part of the discussion. What I want to talk about today, though, is that as the crisis recedes, it reveals that bigger challenge that was there for us in the year 2007 before there was any downturn in the economy. And that's what was happening to middle-class incomes. Um, I worked for the president in 2008 um, when he was, well, when he wasn't president, but wanting to be. And before the economy slipped into such a deep recession, he was really seized by the fact that the typical family, the median income, had fallen from 2001 to 2007, even though the economy had grew pretty decently over that period. And that was a lot of what was motivating him um, to run for president. Turns out he got in there and had a more immediate problem, which was to stabilize an economy that was in free fall. But we've always been worried about this deeper and broader issue. And as I said, it's the one that as the tide recedes shows up very clearly. And that's um, what I want to turn to now. And to put some context on it, I want to give you a really brief history of what we've seen in terms of middle class incomes. And I'll use a few definitions for the middle class. None of them perfect, but all of them um, what we have in terms of data that covers the different spans of time I want. Um, the main one we have from 1948 through 2013, or through 2012, and I extended it, is the average income for the bottom 90% of households. Um, also, we have CBO numbers that are median income and have the advantage of adding health insurance benefits as well as adjusting for changes in 
family size, but all of them tell a broadly similar story. And I'm going to start that story with 1948 to 1973, which I'm going to call um, Brave New World. The average income for the bottom 90% rose 2.9% a year during that period. At that rate of growth, a family could expect to see its income double every 24 years. So about each generation could have twice the income of the previous generation. You ask what contributed to that, three things. The first is you had um, extraordinary labor productivity growth of 2.8% per year. A lot of that was the types of investment and innovation that went into World War II at the federal defense level was commercialized, things like the jet engine and nuclear power. It was also a very large set of federal investments in things like the interstate highway system and um, research. On top of that labor productivity, you had inequality that was actually diminishing over that period. The share of income going to the top 1% was falling by one-tenth of one percentage point per year. Added up over 25 years, that was a one-third reduction in the share of income going to them. And that was matched by gains going to the bottom 90% of workers. Finally, the labor force participation rate went up quite strongly over that period, driven by an increase in um, women in the workforce, going from one-third of the workforce to one-half. So now I'll turn to the next period, and I chose a theme for my titles for these periods. I couldn't find a book that was called Somewhat Harder Times, which I think would be the right name for 1973 to 1995, um, but I did find Hard Times. Here, incomes for the bottom 90% fell at two-tenths of a percent per year. If you add health benefits adjust for family size and use a somewhat different concept, they rose four-tenths of a percent per year. Nothing in this argument is about whether incomes rose or fall. There's no doubt that whatever they did, it was much less progress than was made in the Brave New World period. And this happened because two out of the three things that were working for America in the Brave New World period went wrong in this one. Labor productivity growth was halved, in part, that's because we ran out of that pent-up innovation. In part, that's a set of dislocations caused by the oil shocks, the end of the Bretton Woods systems, and other disruptions um, in the economy. At the same time, inequality started to rise, with the share going to the top 1% rising and the share going to the bottom 90% falling. So the pie was growing less quickly, and it was being distributed less equally. That was partially made up for by the fact that the entry of women into the workforce accelerated over those years as a number of innovations and developments um, helped accommodate that. And women's labor force participation rose from 50% to 75%. That's for prime age women, age 25 to 54. So... The last period is 1995 to 2013, 
it'll take a lot more hindsight and historical data to understand how the 2007 to 2013 period fits into it, because it's obviously been a very unique one with the Great Recession and the recovery. But I'll lump it in now. And I should say none of this is, you know, passing a Um, some econometric test for a time series break, but I think is a useful conceptual way to organize these periods. So the way we live now, 1995 to 2013. Income rose to a first approximation about the same as what it did from 1973 to 1995. Maybe it's a little bit better. Um, Maybe it's the same. And basically, two of the things from the hard times era flipped. The one that didn't flip is inequality, and inequality continued to increase. In fact, it got worse at a more rapid rate than it had in that earlier period. And just to put some perspective on it, the income for the bottom 90% was 52%. They got, I'm sorry, was, they got 68% of national income in 1973. By the end of this period, it had fallen to 52%, so from basically more than two-thirds to about half. The two things that traded places from the hard times era were productivity, which rose at a 2.3% rate annually over this period, in part the new economy, the internet, IT, and a bunch of things that I'll come back to. And then flipping the other way is the labor force participation rate fell, so that extra compensation that income may be growing slowly, but at least you have two earners instead of one, started reversing itself as women's entry into the labor force plateaued and on a cyclically adjusted basis started to fall. And for prime age men, it continued its fall. Um, I want to give you some sense of the relative magnitude of these three effects, the productivity growth, the inequality, and the labor force um, participation. And to do that, Um, I'll do a thought experiment. The thought experiment starts with what if we kept the productivity growth that we enjoyed from 1948 through 1973, that 2.8% productivity growth, and it continued from 1973 to the present. In that case, average incomes would be 58% higher, which would work out to... $30,000. Now, I should be clear that that $30,000 assumes that the income shares were the same, so the bottom 90% would get 52% of the income. It might be the case that if you had a higher productivity growth, you would have had more skill bias technological change, and that share going to the bottom 90% would have fallen. So you might think this overstates the growth part and misses some of the inequality, But I think it's a decent proxy for if you just expanded the whole pie, you kept it just as unequally distributed as it is, what that would do to people. The second thought experiment is um, inequality. And here, the experiment is use the actual productivity growth from 1973 to 2013, so the pie isn't growing nearly as fast as you'd want it to grow but instead fix the income shares where they were in 1973. Don't let the increase in inequality happen. So the bottom 90% 
gets 68% of the income instead of 52% of the income. If that had happened, the percentage impact on income would be 18%, which works out to $9,000. The third experiment is what if we saw the same rate of increase of female labor force participation that we actually had from 1948 through 1995, and it continued from 1995 through 2013. In that case, incomes would have gone up 7% more, a gain of $4,000. The fourth thought experiment is what if we had all three of these? We basically had the productivity growth of the Brave New World era, the level of inequality we had at the end of that era, and the labor force growth we had in the first two eras. Then you'd not only get all three of these, but you'd get the compounding, and the combined impact would double the income of a typical household. So instead of median household income being 50000 it would be about 100000 This is all obviously illustrative. It's all rough in certain senses. But I think the lesson, at least that I take away from this, is that all three of these effects, productivity, inequality, and labor force participation, are quantitatively quite important. I don't think $4,000 is something I'd dismiss. I certainly wouldn't dismiss $9,000, certainly not $30,000. And that the combination of them is especially powerful. The question then is, what is the future of these three? And the future of them, and especially the future of productivity growth, which is the largest of the three factors in explaining what happened to income, I think lies in part in the policy choices that um, we make as a country, and it lies a lot in um, some of the structural opportunities that we have as a country. Um, before talking about those, I just briefly wanted to put this a little bit in um, comparative context. Um, labor productivity growth is, you can see in that blue line, the United States was falling for a while. It then started to rise. It's hard to see the rise because the access is so spread out because in the post-war years, some countries had extraordinary productivity growth. Um, a lot of other countries haven't seen that bounce to productivity growth. Obviously, you see the UK with its latest numbers, Italy, which has faced a lot of challenges. Um, but even other countries haven't. So I think in some sense, structurally, the United States is poised a little bit better to take advantage of um, information technology, biotech, energy, and a number of other developments. Conversely, a place where I think we face, um, where I think, where we know we face much bigger challenges is in terms of inequality, where the United States doesn't just have the highest inequality here measured by the share of income going to the top 1% in the G7. It's also had the fastest rise in inequality, with inequality rising at about twice the rate that it has um, in the United Kingdom. And then the third area, participation, and comparing that, you see that the United States 
um, had in 2007, even before the recession, had an employment population ratio for prime age males that was actually below the OECD average, below the Eurozone, um, and well below Japan, and in fact was 23rd out of 34 countries in the OECD. The crisis, the retiring baby boomers, the set of underlying structural changes that was preceding the recession all combined to lower our employment population ratio still further. Um, it went down even more in the Eurozone, but we're still um, facing a challenge in that regard. When you look at women, female labor force participation in 1990, the United States was seventh out of 24 countries. By 2013, it was 19th out of 24 countries. We went from approximately equal to the UK to about six percentage points below the UK. And one of the factors that explains the difference between the United States and other countries, um, an issue that John has helped the administration think about, is family policies like paid leave and childcare and flexible workplaces that one study found um, explains one-third of the gap between the United States and others. All of this um, now brings me to those structural opportunities and particularly what it means for productivity growth but also for incomes. The first structural opportunity that we have is in the area of health. The United States has the highest health spending as a share of GDP in the world, 16%. That compares to an average of 9% for the OECD, which also happens to be the same as the UK. Despite that, we cover a smaller share of our population with health insurance, and we failed to achieve, obviously, better outcomes in a range of dimensions in the health system. The health challenge wasn't just one of the share of GDP in terms of health spending. It was also the rate of growth, which a decade ago was um, growing at a double-digit rate. And that led the head of the Business Roundtable, the main business organization in the United States, to say, quote, one of the biggest threats to families, businesses, and U.S. competitiveness is the rising growth of healthcare. We've seen a dramatic change from a decade ago. Health premiums, instead of growing at double digits, last year grew at 3% nominal or 1.2% real. That's the lowest we've recorded. Prices, which you see here, are growing at the lowest rate in nearly 50 years. And instead of health being above the inflation for everything else, it's been basically the same and sometimes slightly below. And if you look at total national health spending, the three lowest years we've recorded since 1960 were uh, for growth rates were 2011, 2012, and 2013. The recession was certainly one cause of this, 
But with the health slowdown continuing and deepening in 2013 and 2014, even as the recovery was further underway and the economy was strengthening, um, it surely isn't the only explanation. There are structural changes, many of which have been worldwide, drugs coming off patent, higher deductibles, new medical technologies, some shift away for -for fee-for-service, all of which have um, also played a role. But there's no doubt um, that the Affordable Care Act is part of what's driving the slowdown as well. The Affordable Care Act is probably best known for what it's done to the uninsured. And in the first year that it was fully in effect, the number of uninsured has gone down by an estimated 10.3 million. That's a 26% decline in non-elderly adults. But at the same time that this was happening, it put in place a number of measures on the cost side, including reducing payment growth, linking payments better to value, creating something called accountable care organizations that better integrate delivery systems, and creating an innovation center that allows different types of experimentation with things like bundled payments and scaling it up if it improves quality or reduces costs. Most of these reforms have been in Medicare, which is one-fifth of the health system. But historically, what happens in Medicare ends up being copied by the private sector. And if you account for those spillovers, this accounts for 0.5 percentage point per year of the slowdown in health costs. The slowdown, as I said, is something you've seen in a number of other countries. The UK has seen an even more pronounced one. Um, The United States, if you compare it to the OECD average, was growing faster a decade ago and has slowed um, somewhat more. And I think more research and understanding of these cross-national trends would help. What I want to say, though, in the context of the United States is this has important consequences for the challenges I was talking about before. One of the drivers of inequality, um, not counting health benefits, is that health benefits are eating up an increasing share of paychecks. This slows that process, and if only one-third of the slowdown continues, it adds up to $1,200 per person after a decade. In the short and medium run, reducing not all of the savings get passed through to workers, and reducing employment costs increases employment. And finally, the fact that Medicare spending has come down so much has been one of the big contributors to a large improvement in America's long-run deficit. And one metric for that is the fiscal gap, how much you need to raise taxes or cut spending immediately as a share of GDP to stabilize the debt over 75 years is now estimated by the Congressional Budget Office to be 1.8% of GDP, is estimated by the administration, including our policies, to actually be a 75-year fiscal surplus, not gap, and in either event is considerably better than what we were looking at just a few years ago. The second area um, of tremendous opportunity for our economy is in terms of energy. And here are goals of what we call an all-of-the-above energy strategy are threefold. The first is jobs and growth. The second is increasing macroeconomic stability. 
and the third is reducing carbon emissions. We've seen increases in production of oil and gas and renewables, as well as reductions in consumption of energy, all of which have helped advance these goals. To just go quickly through them, if you look at oil, we've added 3.5 million barrels per day in production since 2006. That's the equivalent to discovering a new Iraq in the United States, well ahead of the forecasts that were made um, a few years ago. At the same time, we're consuming 1.8 million barrels per day less in oil. That's equivalent to no longer needing the oil from Angola or Norway. And this has been driven by the fact that we're using 5% less gasoline now than we were in 2006, even though the economy is 25% larger. So it's a large improvement in fuel efficiency. Natural gas production has also sharply increased, and well over half is non-conventional plays like shale. It's up 24% since um, 2008. You've seen increases in renewables. Wind is up three times since 2008. Utility-scale solar is up 10 times since then. And it's estimated that by 2016, in 36 states, solar energy production will be competitive with conventional. All of this has contributed to our economy. If you just look at the direct effect of oil and gas production on economic growth. It's been 0.2 percentage point per year in 2012 and 13. And just to remind you, when we looked at that 65-year history before, two-tenths of a percent per year on growth um, really matter, and that's only the direct contribution. It's increased our macroeconomic stability Oil prices are always going to be set on global markets. You're always going to be vulnerable to changes in them. But when you've seen the 40% reduction in net imports that we have, it means that you have less of a terms of trade shock when oil prices rise, uh, more of a hedge against them, and as a result, um, a little bit less macroeconomic vulnerability, something the Council of Economic Advisors documented in a report. In addition to that, just the increased production itself in the United States, as you see in that black line, has roughly mirrored and in fact exceeded the growth of unplanned global supply disruptions. So it's been a factor together with reduced global demand due to the slowing economy that has helped reduce the price of oil. Finally, um, the third goal is climate emissions. And the president put in place a climate action plan that together with what we did in the Recovery Act, what we've done with vehicle emissions, what we're doing on HFCs, methane, solar, innovation, electric cars, everything, has already um, been responsible for about half of our emissions reductions. The other half are due to the economy. And we've put in place limits on emission, proposed limits on emissions for power plants that would cut them by 30% by 2030. All of this means we're on target to reach our Copenhagen commitment of a reduction in carbon emissions in the range of 
below 2005 levels by 2020, um, but there's a lot more that we need to do on carbon emissions. The third and final area of structural opportunity is technology. Um, We've been creating new industries and transforming old ones. The United States is at the technological frontier in a wide variety of areas. That, in a way, is a challenge. It means you can't adopt ideas from elsewhere. You have to push that frontier further. You've seen pushing it further in mobile broadband with smaller devices that complement substantial set of investments in wireless and wired broadbands and increase in speed and can help lead to an internet of things that would allow devices to communicate with each other and are responsible for some of the changes I was talking about in health, energy, and other sectors. You see it in biotechnology, where the first genome sequencing cost $3 billion and took years in 2003. A decade later, we've brought the price down to about $1,000, which starts to open up new possibilities for combining personalized medicine, evidence-based medicine, and based on your own disease, your own history, and your own genetic makeup. There's always challenges in all of these technologies. You never know which ones will pay off. Um, But together with other ones like advanced materials, like nanotechnology, some of the renewable energy that have driven the changes I was talking about in solar, I think it's a particularly exciting time. Um, There's things we've done to try to help all of that, whether it's patent reform, freeing up more spectrum for mobile broadband, substantial increases in investment in research and innovation in the Recovery Act and Open Data Initiative um, as well. There's a debate over all this, though, because there's all this exciting stuff we see around us, and then there's the productivity statistics, um, which in the last couple of years have told a different story. And that's led Robert Gordon... John Fernald and other economists to have theories about productivity growth slowing, running out of ideas, a prolonged period of slower productivity growth. On the other side, you have people like Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee that are much more techno-optimistic about all of that. um, I find myself somewhere between those two. Wouldn't want to predict a massive, transformative increase in our rate of productivity growth. But there's no reason that the productivity growth in the next 20 years can't be the same as what we've enjoyed since 1995, that 2.3%, if not higher. Some of the reasons why I wouldn't place too much weight on the latest data is, first of all, um, productivity is very volatile from year to year. The measurement issues are compounded in the wake of a very um, severe recession and a period of lower capital investment. And so if you look over that longer period, since 1995, you see that 2.3% annual rate, and that might be a better way to think about what might happen in the future. I think second, there's a number of measurement issues in productivity. And third, and maybe most important, a lot of these are network technologies that you need to figure out how to work with, incorporate in your workplace. And history, Paul David and others have said that that doesn't happen immediately. In fact, it doesn't even necessarily happen in one wave. So the first round of electricity was putting light bulbs in your house 
which helped. And then there was a pause, and the second round was spreading electricity out so that manufacturing shifted from large verticals in cities to wide horizontals in exurban areas. You, see, you saw something similar in computers where Robert Solo famously quipped, you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics in 1987, and then within a decade, you actually did start to see computers um, in the productivity statistics. Even with um, these three trends and the opportunities that they offer for the United States, um, we still face a lot of challenges. As I said at the beginning, I think we're growing at an increasingly fast rate. We're getting far into the economic recovery, and we're getting towards the point where all of these are become really important. The way in which we deal with those challenges depends a lot um, on both the underlying features of our economy and the global economy, but also depends on the choices that we make. We could make choices to increase growth, like investing in research, investing in infrastructure, reforming our immigration system, reforming our business tax system, expanding trade and integration with the world. We can make changes that would help us better share that growth, like raising the minimum wage, expanding the earned income tax credit for low-income workers, equal pay, investing in education and everything from preschool um, through training. And many of those policies that I just listed under growth or sharing that growth would actually help serve um, both of those goals. And it's all of those um, that the president will continue to do everything that he can um, administratively and working with Congress to advance, to help build on our strengths to address our challenges. So thank you for your attention. And Well, thank you very much, Jason, for a really uh, interesting and stimulating uh, talk. So we have some time now for uh, questions and answers. Uh, one thing I have to say is that, obviously, um, the midterms were yesterday in the U.S., and uh, the president, I understand, will be making a speech at uh, 8 p.m. U.K. time on this. So, obviously, Jason cannot uh, discuss uh, issues around the midterms because of that uh, that issue. So, very sorry, we can't. He won't be able to answer questions on that. So, you can you can ask them, but they'll be pointless. So, uh, I would I would advise you to save your breath for other aspects of things which have been talked about. So, uh, there's a roving mic. So, if you would mind, um, you know, if, if you want to ask questions, put your hand up and announce who you are uh, when you ask a question. Okay, there's a question here in the front row. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Richard, a graduate of the school. Um, with regard to the healthcare costs, you talked about Obamacare being a contributory factor reducing healthcare costs. Can you just explain what else is in that equation and why it will continue? And secondly, the picture you paint is obviously pretty good. I mean, there's been some good recovery. The dollar will probably appreciate in that environment. It has been of late. How will that pose issues, structural issues? What are your thoughts on the dollar? Um, okay, so in answer to your first question, anytime you see a big change, you have to take a look at it and ask, is it temporary or permanent? 
if you didn't know anything about the world, the best guess would be it's some combination of the two of those. Um, we look at the big change we've seen in healthcare and then try to figure out what's causing it. Um, insofar as it's caused by the economic slowdown, then we would expect and we'd certainly hope that it was temporary because the economy will recover, so that portion of the slowdown won't continue. I think two or three years ago, a lot of people looking at the slowdown thought it was all caused by the economy. And as a result, they thought that cost growth would fully bounce back once the economy is recovered. Um, the economy is recovered, and it hasn't bounced back. And in addition, you saw the slowdown in Medicare, which is a federal program, which is not cyclical. You see it in prices, not just in quantities. And it's the quantities that are cyclical in health, not the prices. So the most obvious explanation for it being temporary I think we can rule out, at least for a lot of it. Um, that leaves the remainder. Some of the remainder is probably, again, temporary and just good luck, and it's very volatile. It's very hard to predict. But my thought experiment on the $1,200 was if just one-third of the slowdown persists and two-thirds of it was temporary, so if only just one-third. And I think there's good reason to think that. We've changed the formula by which we reimburse in Medicare and slowed the growth rate of it. We have changed, done things like if you have excessive hospital readmissions, you pay a penalty at risk adjusted that encourages you to get things right the first time so the person doesn't come back. We take where our system is badly broken, which is a lot of fragmentation between outpatient and inpatient care that don't coordinate with each other, and basically say if you coordinate them and save money without hurting quality, we'll give you a share of the savings, and that's led. Um, millions of people to enter programs like that. And they're not like the HMOs of old. They're not mandatory. The person doesn't even know they're in it. And if they want to go out of it, they're allowed to. But they might choose to stay in because um, it's better quality. And then I think the most promising is the one we haven't seen yet, um, which is all the incentives for innovation and for scaling up experiments as we learn how to save money. So it's all of that that I think are things we've done that feel to me like they could make a lasting contribution. Again, I don't want to, you know, if I come back here two years from now and the growth rate's gone up, that doesn't make it false. Um, it's going to bounce around. You're going to be uncertain about it. But I think there's some reason to believe it's slower. And, and the Congressional Budget Office thinks that in their projections um, as well. In terms of the second, um, the uh, United States Department of the Treasury um, discusses the currency on behalf of the United States. Um, I did in my talk point out a slowing um, global economy combined with an appreciating exchange rate is certainly um, a headwind for the U.S. economy. Um, we have tailwinds, too, in the form of, for example, lower oil prices, which will add a couple tenths to our GDP growth. And I think a lot of the biggest effects internationally are less through a conventionally measured trade channel, you know, referring you back to the 13% of GDP, and more through um, the earnings of U.S. corporations are disproportionately overseas. The lending in the United States depends on foreign banks. There is contagion across financial markets, all those types of effects, which are harder to quantify. And at least right now, doesn't appear to be the type of problem that you see in the Eurozone. It's much more of an aggregate demand, affects your trade flows, less of that. Um, but it's that set of stuff that I'd worry more about in terms of tail risk. There's a question up there. Yeah. On the issues of... Uh, Could you say uh, who you are? Yeah, I am an economist and an investor also. Um, 
in the arena of inequality and growth of productivity. It seems that the big corporations with innovation, the innovation uh, as a consequence gives the opportunity for this corporation like Apple, for instance, to, take a, to create a lot of wealth in a few hands. This is a phenomenon of innovation. And at the same time, it increases uh, productivity, this innovation, these big corporations. So let's say if uh, in the future there will come many cases like Apple, for instance, this type of very big corporations. In one sense, it helps the economy, but also it uh, uh, creates a bigger problem on, on the terms of inequality because big wealth uh, goes to few hands. How can we adjust these two phenomena at the right. same time? How can we? Yeah. So I think there's a, the economists have put forward a lot of causes of inequality. I think the increase in inequality has been large enough that there's room for all of those economists to be happy and having correctly explained part of it. Um, and certainly an important one is um, technology. There's two important footnotes, not footnotes, there's two important caveats to that. It's not any technological change. You saw a large increase in productivity growth that I showed you in what I was calling Brave New World from 1948 to 1973, and you saw a reduction in inequality. So it's, first of all, the type of technology, what types of skills is it complementing and rewarding? And it might be you invent a machine that makes a worker more productive, and that helps wages at the middle or the bottom, or it might be you invent um, you know, a, a computer that lets a trader do something faster and, and, and make more money um, at the top. Um, that's the first caveat to the technology story. And the second caveat to the technology story is something that um, Claudia Golden and Larry Katz had a, I mean, there have been a lot of papers about, but they wrote a book about um, called The Race Between um, Technology and Education. And it's that in the 1970s, starting in the 1970s, the pace of skill bias technological change picked up. The pace of educational attainment slowed down. Um, people have been increasing at a much faster rate, college attendance, the number of school years in the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, it was still increasing. It wasn't increasing as much. So I think those two answers give you part of the answer. Insofar as you think technology can complement other skills, it's not going to inherently on its own increase inequality. And so maybe having computers, tablets, I, you know, in classrooms and using them, not the way John was telling me his students did, to check Twitter. <laughs> but, um, to, I'm seeing um, students of mine in the room here at the moment. Uh, they're all good students here. Um, but, uh, but to um, you know, create a learning environment that you couldn't create before, for example. Um, and then the second is to increase the number of workers who have the skills that complement that um, technology. And so investing in education. I don't think you can assume those two will be enough, and that's why things like progressive taxation and ensuring that the benefits um, you know, go to everyone and everyone is included in them um, is an important part of the equation as well. Oh, lots of questions. Okay. <clears throat> I'm going to suggest we take a few questions. That's okay, okay. with you, Jason, sure. just uh, to aggregate a few. So... Dennis had a question here, and then um, there was two questions at, at the back, and then we'll come to the people in the middle. So Dennis first, and then lady at the back, and gentleman at the back. Yeah, Dennis Norby from the University of Warwick and the CEP. 
I have a question about the trade agreements that the U.S. is negotiating right now, both with Pacific countries, the TPP, and with the European Union, TTIP. Uh, some economists, Paul Krugman and Joe Stickers, for example, have called these no big deal. So my first question is, would you agree with that assessment? And my second question is, now that the midterms are behind us, do you think there's an opportunity for the president to take this issue up before the presidential election cycle is going to kick in? Okay, the lady at the back had her hand up. Hi, my name is Nina Hoabus. I'm a journalist from Poland, uh, from Rzeczpospolita. And I'd like to ask two questions regarding the energy. One is whether you think that the low shale, uh, oil prices may affect the uh, shale boom in states. And the second question is, do you think that um, the efforts that are made in states regarding uh, tackling emissions uh, can um, uh, can uh, f bring to states uh, to take some obligations during the next year's climate uh, summit in Paris? And then finally, a uh, gentleman at the back with a tie on. Thank you very much. My name is Ali Mabubakri. I'm the CEO of this executive mind, Texem. My question for you, um, Jason, thank you for your um, interesting presentation. You were able to bring, make figures, you know, speak, so to speak. <laughs> um, what do you think the Detroit, uh, what do you think other states in the United States can learn from the bankruptcy of Detroit? Thank you. So, trade, energy, and urban economics. I'll work those all in together. Um, I think um, TPP and TTIP are economically important in that they're trade agreements that cover um, more than 70% of the global economy. I think they have um, geopolitical importance as well. And part of them are motivated by the fact that um, globalization is happening regardless of what agreements that we make. And so part of the point of those agreements is to make sure we're globalizing um, in a better way, um, in more of a race to the top that have, um, that have um, enforceable rules regarding labor, regarding um, the environment, and make sure that you know, we're not suffering from trade diversion as others um, would otherwise move ahead without the United States. Um, in terms of shale, um, you know, I don't think the people whose job it is to predict energy prices or financial markets, for that matter, do a particularly spectacular job of predicting them, and I'm certainly not any better um, than they are. I think some of the ideas that there are some price points at which shale production in the United States becomes uncompetitive um, is probably wrong. I think it's a continuum that you know, the more price falls, the more things um, are no longer cost effective. And certainly the um, International Energy Agency has said that at $80 a barrel, it's 4% of shale production that, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't, meet a, doesn't meet a cost test. So I think it may be that effect is a certain amount below where we are now and is more of a continuum than sets a particular floor. Um, it is um, climate change is, is a global problem. The only way to solve it is with a global solution. 
and we think you're not going to get a global solution without the leadership of the United States, without the leadership of Europe, without the participation of countries like China and India. And we think the fact that the United States is acting and many European countries um, are acting as well puts us in um, a much better position going into the discussions in Paris to show the type of leadership to work with other countries to get them to agree to binding climate goals um, as well. Um, finally, the, the lessons of Detroit. Um, I mean, one lesson is a... 80-year-old lesson, which is if you have a, you know, which is that monocultures are um, more um, at risk from shocks than more diversified cultures, and, and Detroit was a monoculture, and that put it on, created challenges for decades for it, and created a particularly severe one when the industry it was dependent on um, went into such problems. Um, you've seen, um, you know, but I think Detroit is also an example of that um, you know, we have a municipal bankruptcy system in the United States that is effective, that can create procedures for working out that debt so that you can then you know, move forward. This is something you don't have at the state level in the United States, and you don't have a system at the sovereign level in the world, but you do have it for cities. And I think that will, combined with the strengthening we've seen in the auto industry, a lot of the ways in which we've tried to um, facilitate and speed things up for Detroit, um, help aid um, their economic recovery. So I think that institutional mechanism, um, and I don't know quite how that works in other countries around the world, um, but I think that in some ways is effective, combined with things like just a tax system that has, um, you know, in effect, automatic stabilizers that operate across state borders and across city borders in a way that you don't have, again, at the national level in a place like Europe. Okay, so it's, uh, I think the gentleman there has been waiting, and the blue shirt has been waiting a while to have a question. Well, again, we'll take we'll take a couple of questions. That's okay. Sure. <clears throat> um, Hug Oliver Damian, member of the public. Uh, have you looked at technological growth and productivity vis-a-vis -vis employment, in the sense that you could say that there was a big growth in employment during the Brave New World because it created a lot of manufacturing jobs? But the kind of technological productivity we're having now needs less people. So how would you balance that out with what's mm -hmm. happening? Because a lot of things can be outsourced either to other countries or to machines themselves. Yep. Um, and gentleman there in the mauve sweater. And the lady here in the yellow sweater. Thank you. My name is Ryan. I'm a graduate student here. To what degree do you think the structural challenges you identified are best addressed by policymaking at the federal level? And to what degree do you think they're best addressed by policymaking at the state and local level, which is so huge uh, in the U.S.? And if you think it leans more towards the state and local level um, in certain areas, um, how, I don't know, optimistic are you that those groups will be able to coordinate well enough to kind of have a coordinated policy response? Thank you. Hi, I'm a general course student from the U.S. Oh, okay. Um, I'm, a, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so my question has to do with, you said an opportunity for the U.S. economy is um, the technology growth that we're seeing currently. But related to that, there's also an increase in burdening debt for student um, loans. And as well, there's also um, more and more graduates deterring to 
uh, advanced education instead, which also increases student debt. Do you think this is a structural um, challenge for the U.S.? And if so, how can we solve it? Mm-hmm. Workless factories, federal versus local, and student debt. Okay. So, um, uh, in my introduction, you didn't include the fact that I used to be a professional juggler. So I will take all three of these and work them together, keep them up in the air at once. Um, One thing that didn't change a lot in the three periods that I showed was, um, was unemployment. In pretty much all of those, about 95% of people who wanted jobs had them. Now, it went up in recessions. Maybe it went down when the economy heated. I think when productivity growth changes, um, it actually helps for a period of time drive the unemployment rate down, as we saw in the 1990s. Um, But for the most part, and you could extend this back a couple hundred years before what I showed, um, the market clears so that most of the people who want to work um, can work. So so I think the challenge in terms of technology is more what the first gentleman was asking before in terms of can work, but can work at what price? And what price is the inequality we were talking about before? And so I think the reason why what you're describing is not a problem I'm incredibly concerned about is because there is this other one um, we are concerned about, which is um, the increase in inequality. Um, In answer to the question of whether um, it should be federal or state, I'm going to give a one-word answer, and I think you can probably predict what it is, um, which is both. (laughs) Um, But those aren't two independent things. Um, We we saw state innovation in how to deliver health care to more people in Massachusetts, and we scaled that up at the federal level in the Affordable Care Act. um, So they were the states led. We saw, um, you know, we created a fund race to the top in education that offered money to states that adopted innovative new things in terms of education. It said, here are the goals, here are the types of things, but you go figure it out. Apply and, and you know, we'll, we'll reward you if it's along those lines. So we were catalyzing state innovation in a variety of dimensions. So you see things, you know, bubble up and go down. And then you see things where you parallel track it. Um, the president launched an effort to raise the minimum wage in his State of the Union address in January 2013. If that was um, happened at the federal level, 28 million people would be paid more. Um, hasn't happened at the federal level. But since then, um, states across the country and cities across the country have raised their minimum wages. Eight million people are going to get a raise because of that. And then on top of those eight million, Um, Several more states yesterday passed ballot initiatives to raise their minimum wage as well. So there we'd like to do it federal, but no one's waiting for the federal government to do it. They're moving ahead. Um, And then student loan debt um, is a whole other topic, obviously. Um, I think the first thing to understand is the the typical debt is about $24,000. The typical return to college is about $15,000 per year. Um, $24,000 in exchange for $15,000 per year is um, an extremely good deal. That, um, of course, is averages. And I think a lot of the problem is the dispersion around those averages, and in particular, um, the right tail. And I think some of the challenges with that right tail may have grown. They've grown with for-profit institutions that don't necessarily uh, create a lot of risk for their students. 
they grow a lot for students that don't complete. When you combine the two of those, the default rate for for profit students at for profit schools that don't complete is over thirty percent. And so that, I think, points you towards the solution, which isn't um, less education. It doesn't make sense for everyone, every type of education, but it makes sense for an awful lot of people. Um, But it says an emphasis on the quality of colleges. So um, we put in place regulations for for for-profit schools that they're graduating a lot of defaulters that basically (coughs) won't give them any more federal assistance. Um, And it says a focus on completion. And then it says have better risk sharing, something that you have in the U.K., Australia, and elsewhere, um, that we've expanded income-based repayments. So if your income goes down, um, your payments are capped at 10% of your income and then ultimately forgiven if they still um, haven't repaid after a period of time. So I think it's those types that address the risk and the, the lower tail um, is the really important part of, of the student debt issue. Okay, uh, I see one question down here and one at the back and then maybe probably a final one at the front. So, Thank, thank you, Chair, for your talk. Uh, my name is Rahul Reki. I'm a student in the MSc in Economics program here. Uh, towards the end of your talk, you mentioned that a number of the main structural opportunities for growth for the United States would be in areas of high tech, you know, nanotechnology, biotech, and so on. But the U.S. investment in scientific research and development has dropped considerably, particularly in the physical sciences. Since the 1970s, I think it's been cut by half and uh, normalized the GDP. So is there any appetite or impetus for, for changing the way you know, publicly funded research is carried out? And, uh, and if so, what are, your, what are your thinking on that? Uh, we should be investing more in publicly funded research. We certainly propose that in our budget. Um, and that's something we'd love to see. We did secure a bunch of investment, a bump up, a significant one in 2009, but a lot of that was one-time money that's on track to being spent out, and um, we've proposed to increase the base. We've been successful um, in some areas, but as you said, compared to where we were as a share of the economy decades ago, um, I think the private side matters too, so things like taking the research and development tax credit, reforming it, expanding it, making it permanent, um, and paying for all of that, of course, um, could help on the private side. My name is Lars Patterson. I uh, am a Norwegian economist. Uh, I work uh, for a hardcore capitalist investment firm here in London, so my question might surprise you. It's very practical, and that is, to what extent do you have uh, union representatives or on your Council of Economic Advisors and how do you sort of relate or include unions in that process? And I'm saying that with background of being Norwegian because in Second World War we have had very good labor relations in Norway and sort of in terms of one, unemployment and two, uh, income distribution. I noticed that you sort of had a black line around 6% unemployment. In Norway that would be considered very high unemployment. And secondly, and sort of income distribution. So instead of progressive taxation and redistribution, the unions have played a very strong role in keeping unemployment down, uh, improving labor productivity, and also uh, the priority of keeping unemployment down. Because typically, instead of having going for salary increases, it's sort of 
keeping a fairly even income distribution amongst the members. I wonder, basically, do you have union members yep. on, your, yep. on your team? Uh, so I completely agree with the premise of your question. Um, I said before, there's enough explanations of the increase in inequality that we have room for all of them, and the reduction in the unionization of the economy is certainly an important one, especially if you're trying to explain things like the 90-10 wage differential. And in fact, if you look at 100 years of data and you look at the share of private sector and unions, and you look at the share of the income, uh, and you look at, I think it's the 90-10 wage ratio, those are almost exact inverses of each other. As unionization expanded in the first part of the century, wages compressed, and as unions contracted, um, wages um, spread out. So I agree that that's an important issue. Um, in terms of the Council of Economic Advisors, we're not um, a body that represents the different interests. We don't have a business representative and a labor representative and an environmental representative. Um, we're all economists. And as such, um, we're focused on you know, what we think the economic research tells us and what it tells us about the national interest. And in this case, I think it tells us a story very consistent um, with what you just said. Um, but it's not you know, we're not organized as a way to aggregate the voices of different groups. We're organized um, to, uh, well, except insofar as you think economists are a group. Yeah, we do have an interest, which is generally more money for research and federal data. Um, but beyond that, I think we, we focus on the national interest, not the parochial. And for economists, of course, high wages for economists are always uh, always necessary. So I think you had a last last question there. Sure. Yeah, just a, a, another postscript on inequality. I mean, we, uh, a lot of commentators have talked about the hollowing out of the, the the workforce in terms of the middle income people losing out to automation and to globalisation, uh, leaving an economy of high end and low end service jobs. Um, what, what, in your view, is the uh, are some of the public policy responses um, that could address that fundamental sort of economic shift, which is driven by globalisation and other forces, which are way beyond uh, government's normal ability to control in a free market economy? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a big question, a lot of answers. Um, if you increased um, improved institutional arrangements, whether it's labor unions or higher minimum wage, that would help. Um, if you do things like education that give more people the skills um, to go to the top, that would help. If you do things that make sure the, con the negative consequences for you of not succeeding in that world aren't nearly as bad, like the Affordable Care Act that ensures you have um, health insurance, no matter what, I think that helps... Um, a lot as well, and um, you know a range of other a range of other policies. So I think in some sense the entire policy agenda um, is about that. And we've had several questions about inequality, and I want to reiterate what I said before. The inequality is very important. I think the increase in it has had a sizable impact on the typical household's income. I think addressing it um, is important, um, but it's not the only thing. Um, and the rate of economic growth and the rate of productivity growth has been another really big factor that shaped the growth of income for the median household, the bottom 90%, whatever definition of the middle class um, you're using. So I don't think we want to lose sight of the fact that even if income is increasingly unequal, if you're growing faster, that would be less bad. And even better is policies that will help you grow faster 
and um, help sh- ensure those benefits are shared more widely. Well, with that, I think uh, I just want to thank Jason once more for a great speech and fantastic Q&A. So thank you very much. Thank you.